Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in low-carbon fuels and vehicles and future fuels. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is John Cooper, who is the Director General of Fuels Europe. And we're going to talk about a number of things affecting the European refining industry. Welcome to the show, John. It's great to have you. Tammy, thanks. It's, uh, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, contribute something for uh, future fuel strategies. Thanks. Well, thank you. As we start, can you talk about the state of the refining industry in Europe? You know, with the increasing regulatory pressure and advocacy from, I mean, really strong proponents in Europe that want to see a total end of fossil fuel use like yesterday and the EU's commitment to the Paris Agreement. You know, my question is, is there even a future for European refining? And, um, you know, what's the competitive landscape looking like for the refining industry? Can you talk about some of those issues? Sure. Uh, very good question. And you're absolutely right. You characterize the conversation, certainly in Brussels and in many other uh, member state capitals in Europe very well, actually. Uh, I mean, let me start by saying that the industry that I represent and the industry association, Fuels Europe, has come out very clearly in favor of the Paris Agreement, completely recognizing uh, climate change as a global problem, requiring global action. And we also believe that our industry can be part of the future and part of the solution. So that probably doesn't fit with how some people think around this. So let me just say a few words to back up a little. So what's the, what's the uh, state of the refining industry in Europe? Well, let's just say that it is a tough time for refining industry, particularly in Europe. Uh, but it's not catastrophic, and the, we have many companies that continue to uh, to do business in Europe. Uh, actually, the association has 41 member companies, and uh, that represents around 80, 81 refineries refining in Europe. In terms of the the wish to see uh, fossil fuels phased out rapidly, I sometimes remind people that. Uh, just the companies we have here in Europe have probably at least 50 million customers every day coming to buy our products and that we provide essential fuels for transport, not just road transport, but uh, aviation, marine, construction, agriculture. And then, of course, there's petrochemicals and bitumen demand. And you take all those together. Europe needs its liquid fuels and products from its refineries and will likely to continue to need those for decades ahead. And it's true that there are some emerging alternatives for some parts of the barrel. And we'll talk about this later, I think. It will be useful to talk about those things. But it's very clear that the demand is there for these products for the long term. And while we are seeing strong competition from refiners in other parts of the world, you know, we've, we're currently at around 20% of imports of the road transport fuels. 20% of Europe's road transport fuels needs are met from imports. And those imports are typically coming from the US, the Middle East, and Russia. And those three regions of the world have a couple of things that are in common to give a reason to why they are able to provide products to Europe competitively. And those two things are they have a lower regulatory burden on the refineries and they also have lower cost of energy, in particular, lower cost of natural gas. And that means the cost of refining in those three regions is lower than it is in Europe. 
which means they can import to Europe and still be very competitive when those products are landed in Europe. So it's, it's, it's a tough times in terms of competing with that, but several of the European refiners are, have been investing to, to give complexity in their refineries and integration. Many of the companies in Europe have good integration into the logistics and marketing, the downstream uh, right through to the petrol station, and then also integration with petrochemicals uh, manufacturing. And that, that, that strategy of some degree of complexity and integration enables them to be competitive. And so they still have some, some good business models here in Europe. In terms of the Paris Agreement, we also see that there is a pathway going forward where there is, if you like, there is space in the available carbon budget to, to accommodate the continued use of uh, liquid fuels and petroleum fuels for transportation as long as we also get progress towards efficiency as well. And we think efficiency is a big part of the story. Uh, and that's something maybe we can come back to later in the questions. So you talked about competitive landscape with respect to imports, but how do you see it with respect to exports? Because you now have American refiners um, you know, beginning to export more. The Middle East is, is cleaning up. Um, their fuels, particularly in Saudi Arabia, and um, you know, there's there's markets to market share to to be had there, and they're a traditional exporter. You have a lot of uh, countries in uh, Latin America and especially in Asia that are beginning to set that you know they're net importing countries and they're beginning to set uh, tighter fuel specifications. So, how does the competitive landscape look for European refiners when it comes to the export markets? Well, I guess I should say it looks tough. To recap some of the basics, Europe has been short of diesel and distillates for some time now. While we do expect demand to gradually decline in road transport markets around diesel and petrol, we're still seeing some growth in marine and aviation. And uh, there's also the, uh, the, the now planned switch in marine from higher sulfur residual fuels to uh, lower sulfur distillate type fuels or desulfurized fuels. We'll see some, some changes in the demand slate overall. So it's likely that there'll be demand for distillates that can take all of Europe's production and more for some time. So the question about exports from Europe really is more around gasoline. What will happen to the gasoline produced in Europe? Where gasoline has been long historically and uh, uh, perhaps some pet chems feedstocks as well. Now, talking about the gasoline, that's an interesting link to the other issue that's going on in Europe's markets, and that is the future of diesel in the passenger car fleets. And we know that there are some proposals and some thinking that that, that could actually unwind, actually. So, and that's maybe something we could talk about more. Actually, I want to segue into that because there's been a lot of talk this year um, and really post-Dieselgate or the, the scandal with Volkswagen, there's been this discussion about the potential to reverse dieselization in Europe. And I want to read you this quote from a podcast interview that I did recently with Joss Dings of Transport and Environment, who said the following with respect to dieselization. I want to get your reaction to it. And more silently, you're seeing diesel development programs being put on hold. You know that there's not much money being poured into the further development of the diesel engine anymore. And you know that it's exactly what I think we need in Europe. 
We have lost decades in Europe by investing essentially in the wrong technology. Technology that is expensive, and let's not forget, a diesel cars are 2,000 euros more expensive than a regular gasoline vehicle. So I think it was long overdue that Europe's industry recognized that it needed to put its money elsewhere. But we're now, and to quite an extent due to Dieselgate, we're starting to see that happen. Do you believe, actually, that there is or is going to be a reversal of dieselization in Europe? And if you do, what time frame would you project based on your knowledge now? I guess it's no surprise that I don't fully agree with things that I said, that, that, that Yoss has said there. There is some truth in some of it, and, and, and let me explain that. But I'll also say that diesel remains a very important technology for the future for a number of different sectors. What we are seeing, as I understand it, is some rebalancing of the, of the portfolio of cars that car makers offer. It is true that some of that has been driven by the fallout from the Volkswagen scandal. Some of it was probably due to happen anyway. The cost of emissions abatement technology for, for diesel has been going up in any case as we move towards Euro 6, full implementation of Euro 6 in particular with real driving emissions. What that means in practice is that all diesel vehicles will need the AdBlue system, selective catalytic reduction, uh, which requires a tank for the AdBlue uh, chemical and uh, a system to manage the injection of that into the exhaust system. While we've seen the larger vehicles have that system for a year or two now, it has not yet been fully implemented on the smaller vehicles. What we'll see is car makers make a choice as they look at their, their engineering strategies there. When they get to the smaller vehicles, and I'm thinking European model like the, uh, the Volkswagen Polo, they may decide that that technology is expensive to deploy on a car like that, which would mean that the car offered at the dealer would be relatively expensive compared with the petrol version and they therefore may decide not to offer it. I've heard numbers of the order of 1,500 euros, possibly 2,000 euros, on the cost of a small car. And that's quite a high uh, number for a small car. And it may mean, especially considering that small cars are often not used for a high mileage by the customer, they, it may mean that it becomes an uneconomic choice for those customers. And so the car makers will choose simply to offer those cars as petrol only. Now, that can be quite a large portion of the car sales. If you look at the car sales in the class of Polo and Golf class and below, that's roughly half of the sales of the cars. It may not be half of the fuel usage or half of the kilometers or miles driven, but it is a significant portion of the car fleet. And right now, that portion, that, that, that car fleet is, is split between gasoline and diesel, and in many countries, more diesel than gasoline. We expect that in future years to be predominantly gasoline. And that means we will see some rebalancing between gasoline and diesel demand. When it comes to the larger cars that tend to be more expensive and also cover uh, higher mileages, the additional cost to get them fully compliant with Euro 6 with RDE, we think will be relatively small. Many of them have already got uh, blue equipment at the Euro 6 level. And uh, also the economics of running the car for a longer mileage means that it will support an increment on the price. So actually, we would expect cars like the 5 Series, 3 and 5 Series BMWs and E-Class Mercedes, 
these cars often cover quite high mileages and are used for long journeys uh, over many hours. Diesel is still a superb technology for that. And I think it's worth saying, just for clarity, we do believe that Euro 6 can and will be implemented robustly. It can meet the required standards. There are already vehicles that can do that. And so that will allow it to uh, play a key role in being a relatively low CO2 powertrain for vehicles and also being able to meet the air quality requirements. And lastly, I'd point to think of the light commercial vehicles as well. Light commercial vehicles tend to get worked very hard. You know, you, you think of the delivery fleets of the, you know, the major couriers of the world. I mean, some of those vehicles, they barely stop moving. Um, and the idea that we could move to, a, for example, electrified powertrains in those vehicles seems very challenging. I mean, you simply wouldn't have enough time for recharging. Uh, today in Europe, pretty much all of the light vehicle uh, commercial fleets are diesel. In most cases, gasoline engines aren't even offered. So we expect diesel to remain a technology that's important for the larger cars as well as the light and medium and heavy-duty commercial vehicles. And in terms of the continuation of R&D, I absolutely see that continuing. There's, uh, there's certainly work to improve the uh, uh, exhaust after treatment and to take the efficiency uh, stages further as well. There are many academics that talk about the potential to improve the efficiency of the internal combustion engine, both in a diesel cycle and in an auto cycle, even further. Don't see that coming to an end. So, I mean, there, there you go. It's, a, it's an important technology for the future. Uh, there will be some rebalancing towards gasoline. It's unclear to the extent of that right now. But we think it'll be competitive. And just one final point. There's a point that, that Jos makes in the car becoming more expensive, 2,000 euros more expensive than a regular gasoline vehicle. We do see more hybridization coming into the fleet. Uh, really, the competitor for an efficient diesel vehicle is not so much the regular gasoline, but maybe more the hybridized gasoline vehicle. Hybridized gasoline vehicles are also a little more competitive, a little more expensive because of the hybrid equipment on there. So basically, in comparison with a hybrid gasoline vehicle, you've got a competition between those technologies. They may be similar cost. So they're both important. So where do you see electric vehicles coming in? Because I think the, the common assumption is, you know, well, we'll just jump to electrification. But it seems more realistic to me if there's any sort of trend reversal of, of dieselization. What you're saying, actually, I think would make sense to go more toward gasoline hybridization. And there will be some level, I would imagine, of um, electric vehicle uptake. It's, it is increasing in, in uh, many countries in Northern Europe and in other member states, say my opinion. I don't see a huge tipping point coming um, in the next five years, but maybe in the next you know, 10 to 15, there might be really significant penetration of, of electric vehicles in the fleet. Am I wrong? Do you see it differently? What do you think about electric vehicles in the European market? Uh, very good question. Um, and obviously one that's discussed a lot. Well, I think it depends on two things that you need to consider at the same time. One is the technology progress of electrification and the way the costs can come down and the performance of the vehicle can improve. And the other is the level of political support and the political support translates into incentives and tax breaks and things like that. 
And of course, there is also something else which is going on, which is which is how do the other technologies uh, progress to compete with electrification? It's clear that electrification will be part of the future. The question is really about the scale and when it arrives at that scale. And let me start by saying, as an engineer, I completely get the proposition of electrified vehicles, in particular the attractiveness of using an electric motor to propel a vehicle. It's kind of an engineer's dream uh, because an electric motor is very easy to package, it's very easy to control, it has extremely low maintenance, it, um, it also has a very good torque characteristic, very high torque at low speeds, and so it has a lot going for it. The, the weak link is the battery, uh, particularly where you need range and you need a larger battery to get that. Batteries are inherently heavy. Their energy density is a tiny fraction what the energy density of a petrol tank or a diesel tank is. With all the progress that's being planned in the best R&D labs in the world today, it will still only make a small contribution to closing that gap between the energy density of liquid fuels and the energy density of the battery. The other thing that needs to be considered is, in our view, the life cycle of the vehicle overall. Uh, there's some very interesting work that, that has been done by one of the Norwegian universities uh, in Trondheim, uh, and others have been doing work in this area as well, looking at the life cycle of manufacturing the vehicle as well as running the vehicle. And when we look at the overall picture, the life cycle of the vehicle and the energy, we can see that currently the electric vehicles on offer, vehicles like the Nissan Leaf, vehicles like the Tesla Model S, make very, very, very small improvements in the overall GHG emission from that choice of vehicle. And it's a very different picture from looking at it that way, from looking at treating the vehicle as purely a zero emission vehicle and looking at the savings on the sort of the tank to wheels approach, shall we say. When you look at it like that, you step back and you say, are we ready to make this push towards electrification? Because there's clearly work to be done in the overall life cycle, in the overall value chain of the vehicles to make, to make meaningful improvements. Uh, the other thing that gives us cause for concern as to whether it's ready for mass deployment is the level of incentives that are required to get vehicles onto the road today. I'm struck by the fact that people like Jos and Jos Dings, T&E, and uh, others in the, um, uh, the NGO community increasingly tell us that battery costs are coming down. In fact, that's the thing that's commonly reported or quite regularly reported by uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And we understand that they are indeed coming down. But what's puzzling is that while those costs appear to come down, the calls for an increase in the number of incentives or the scale of incentives to get electric vehicles on the road become more common as well. We, were, we have seen just in the last few months a call in Germany to introduce a plug-in car grant, and that was, in fact, put in place. And we continue to hear calls for further incentives from a number of different industry associations to get more electric cars on the road. If the battery costs were coming down and the performance of the cars were going up, you'd think that that trend in incentives were go was going the other way. Now, if you do the maths, we see at least €10,000 per car at the moment to get every car onto the road. That trend isn't changing, €10,000 per car. If you do the maths in an admittedly extreme case, 
and you spend 10,000 euros to turn over the full European fleet, which takes 15 years. The total number of vehicles, if you turn those over with 10,000 euros uh, incentive for every vehicle, you'd spend around 2.5 trillion euros incentivizing the vehicle fleet in Europe to become electrified. We just can't see how that can happen. That's, I think, something like 15 times the European budget, the European Union budget. Very, very large numbers involved. And so what we're doing at the moment, we've got a very small progress towards electrification. We've got about 0.1, 0 0.2% of the European fleet electrified. A very small number of customer choices to go to an electric vehicle. That trend so far has been underpinned by this heavy incentivization. It's extremely difficult to extrapolate there and say, we're on the road to a mass electrification. We think, first of all, the life cycle will have to be taken into consideration, in which case people will say, okay, it's an important technology, it still needs to be supported, but we're not ready for such major spend in this area. There will be some political uh, pushback on the level of spend and the level of cross-subsidy of electrification when it gets to a larger, a larger cost burden, if you like. It probably begs the question, so what do we think as an association should happen? And actually what we say is we absolutely recognize electrification as an important technology. Today it works very well in the form of hybridization or technologies that require only a smaller battery. Good example is e-bikes. Actually, a lot of urban journeys can be replaced by citizens on e-bikes. Uh, you know, huge success in China, and they're picking up in Europe as well. The hybridization, hybrid cars, we've, we, we mentioned before, plug-in hybrids as well, can also be not a bad solution. It avoids the cost of a big battery. And we think some mechanism to help us choose those kind of technologies rather than steer us directly towards large battery vehicle solutions is probably the right way in the, in the medium term. We also say efficiency remains an important technology to invest in, back to the conversation we had earlier, but efficiency for all types of engines, not just diesel, diesel, gasoline, and of course, aviations for, uh, sorry, uh, engines for aviation and marine as well. And finally, biofuels, sustainable biofuels, and other technologies that can give you a lower GHG intensity in the liquid fuel. One thing that comes through to us very loud and clear is basically the resounding success of the liquid fuel as a concept. And if we are going to move to lower GHG intensity in transport, lowering the GHG intensity of the liquid is a, you know, is a, is a viable and sensible route there because it doesn't require new infrastructure. It doesn't need huge engineering changes in the way vehicles are propelled. And so we think those technologies are important to pursue. So I want to turn to the European Commission's, um, as you know, the, the Commission just released its Clean Energy for All Europeans package of energy and climate proposals. Uh, thousands of pages, very, very American. Uh, <laughs> um, but at least they didn't release it on Christmas Eve, which is what EPA t tends to do. Uh, 5,000 pages of regulation that you have to digest in, in a very short time. But anyway, with respect to the uh, clean energy package, there were a number, um, as you know, that cover transport. So my first question is, what is Fuels Europe's general reaction to the package? And uh, what do you expect the impact to be on the refining industry in Europe? 
It's a starting point. <laughs> I guess we would say that. One of the things that's clearly reflected in this document is some reflection on where we are with biofuels. If we go back maybe 10 years, people somehow thought that biofuels was on our path to have steadily increasing volumes for many years into the future. I think you and I know and uh, listeners to this podcast will know that we've come up against some uh, some pushback on that objective. Along the way, Europe decided to uh, propose and implement a cap on conventional biofuels at 7% uh, prior to getting to the, um, the 10% uh, proposed target for 2020. The document that we've seen published in 2016, long before we even get to 2020, it contains you know, a lot of reflection on that, that, first of all, the target to get to 10% and the 7% uh, cap on conventionals. Uh, what's clear is that the ambition for 2030, the period 2020 to 2030, is relatively modest, I guess what people would, 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 would describe, and that the focus is on moving towards the most sustainable biofuels rather than increasing the overall quantity. It's still leaving open some issues that are, that are controversial and not surprisingly looking at the reaction to this proposal. There are still things that are open and, and not clear how they will get resolved. So let me speak particularly around this cap on conventional biofuels and then also say something about the future of advanced biofuels. So the the proposal contains a the idea of reducing the cap on conventional biofuels in a gradual slope down to around 3.5% by 2030. I think we will see as being controversial, and already we see reactions uh, on opposite sides of that idea. And regardless of what the fuels industry says or thinks on this subject, it is guaranteed to be controversial and to a lot of high energy debates, shall we say, over the next couple of years. On the one side, you have NGOs who are mostly quite negative about biofuels now and uh, talk about, first of all, food versus fuel as a debate, and secondly, indirect land use change as, as a major risk from continuing, continuing with biofuels. On the other side, you have not only the biofuels industry, but also the agriculture sector, who talk about the importance of crops for biofuels to the farming system in Europe. And so you see some quite strong forces there gathering around this issue. And uh, that's before the oil industry has really said much about it. <laughs> I'm not sure how that issue is going to get resolved. One of the things that's I mean, pretty well known in Europe in the political circles is that there are several member states that recognize the importance from an agriculture and also national energy supply and energy security aspect, the importance of keeping biofuels that are produced from crops in, in Europe. And we think there's nothing really changed around the politics of that. So it's not clear at all what will happen in terms of that part of the proposal that the Commission have made. Let's just say something about advanced biofuels because it links. And there's certainly an idea that's shared by many that if the Commission were to act aggressively to reduce the use of crop-based biofuels, even if that's done in a sustainable manner, that 
that if the if the commission were to to depress the use of those, it would reduce the desire of investors to invest in advanced biofuels for Europe. And I guess I can say I have a certain sympathy for that because Europe overall has quite a significant track record of changing direction on biofuels. As we sit here today, we've still got the cap on conventional biofuels proposed at 7%, not fully implemented in some countries. And the commission is already talking about significant measures to reduce it further. I think a lot of people may well say, well, I thought we had that debate and I thought that the cap on conventionals at 7% was the solution, the compromise, the middle ground solution to that. It's clear that for some, that issue, they want to reopen it and it looks like that's going to happen. If you're an investor, somebody thinking of putting money into advanced biofuels, I think it's quite reasonable to have some real concern over how how robust European policy is in this area. The commission proposals include this idea of sub-quota for advanced biofuels going from half percent up to 3.5%, I think it is, by 20, was it 3.8% by 2030? Doing the maths for those numbers, that's a lot of advanced biofuels. It's the order of 9 million tonnes by 2030, 9 million tonnes of advanced biofuels effectively means if people start making preparations now and start building plants in 2020, almost a million tonnes a year to be started up between now and 2030. That's a lot of advanced biofuels plants. That's probably 20 cellulosic ethanol plants or 10 to 20 renewable diesel plants making fuels from waste. And it's also some tens of billions of euros of investment. Now, given what I've just said about the track record and the lack of clarity over some important issues, it's quite difficult to see how those those plants will get built. So we think a number of things need to happen. I mean, there needs to be a real conversation about what is uh, practical as a target. And secondly, we also need to have a conversation around the reliability of price signals for investors in the market. What will they get paid for their advanced biofuels? That's something that the regulation is completely, or the, sorry, the, the draft directive is really completely silent on. Anybody that wants to, or is contemplating investing in advanced biofuels needs to know something about how valuable they will be in monetary terms. And so there's a great deal of detail to be worked through. And some of it will be very difficult to work through because the commission themselves don't really have the authority to talk around what are inherently market-type issues like what will these biofuels cost, what will they sell for in the market. So I, I see it's a starting point, but I see some very difficult conversations coming forward with some strong voices in disagreement. And I hope we'll see some leadership from the commission and also from member states on this issue to be constructive and to work towards putting to bed issues like what does ILOOP do to European regulation? Does it keep making a new change every five or 10 years? We need to see some resolution to that so that people can make their decisions about investments to meet, to, to meet the future regulations. Well, if I were an investor, and I wrote about this on, on the site, as you may know, if I were an investor, and I may well have been burned on uh, 1G because of ILUC in Europe, 
and maybe I was looking at an advanced investment, why would I bother? I mean, why would I even, I mean, to me, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, fool me, what is it? Uh, fool me once, shame on, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's, it's really, to me, it's that kind of situation. So I, I really wonder what the commission is, is thinking here because it's by and large going to be a similar type of investor. So if you're looking at phasing down with really an eye toward phasing out, I mean, that's that's really what it is. What would give you any trust or credibility that, yeah, something in the iLuke realm or something else wouldn't pop up with an advanced biofuel or an advanced uh, feedstock down the line? And then this whole conversation opens up again. So to me, you know, I just think, I just wonder, you know, what the commission is driving at and whether there might be other more productive ways to, you know, facilitate these fuels because it's important. We've seen the, the paper. I mean, it's all, uh, you know, on, on paper, these fuels and now, you know, many of them are at the pilot stage. There's a great deal of potential, um, there and we've started down this path and I think it may be important to see it through, but couldn't there have been other approaches taken? So that's my, what I wonder. And then for the refining industry, I mean, it's when all this was starting in 2003, 2004 in Europe, I mean, it's not like the refining industry begged the commission for a biofuels mandate. <laughs> um, as you very well, uh, as you very well know. I don't know. I just find it really ironic because your industry has invested millions and billions in basically complying with these mandates. And now we're doing something new again. I mean, how much I mean, I I don't know if you if you know the answer to this, but I mean, are we talking millions in stranded, you know, potential stranded investment? I mean, what are we with all of the the flipping and the flopping and the discussions and and no certainty, what is it costing the refining industry? Because you you guys are the ones that are ultimately charged by and large with complying. I don't have numbers on what investments have been been made or or, or wasted by the the, the fuels industry, uh, but it certainly runs uh, well into the tens of millions, and I would imagine quite possibly into the hundreds of millions. And if certainly if you look if you look at globally, I mean, there's been a lot of money spent developing and trying to develop cellulosic fuels. I think it's fair to say that many of the investments have struggled because of changes in regulation which drops the selling price of the finished product. I mean, it's fair to say that some of the technologies have been slow to get started as well. If you, uh, if you start a plant, but it takes you two or three or more years to get to full production, that means it t- it's taking you, you know, two, three, four years to get to a full income stream as well. That hasn't helped. Uh, it's certainly been true that the, the technologies have been a little slower to come through than was originally hoped. But that's actually true of a lot of technologies, and it's been very much true of electrification too. Um, things usually go a bit slower than people hope. What we think is an important metric here is that we should look at what do we spend for a ton of carbon for the different te- technologies we're looking at. Because an interesting reference point is what, what uh, the politicians are prepared to support in terms of the costs of electrification. You might have seen work that we've done. We do a fairly simple calculation showing the financial inputs to get a car, an electric car onto the road, and the CO2 benefits. Even before you take into account the whole life cycle and the manufacture of the car, 
you're already spending a thousand euros a ton of carbon to be saved. Now, that's an extreme number by any measure. If you build a coal-fired power station in Europe today, you have to buy permits under the EU ETS scheme to cover the emissions. That's the cap and trade scheme that we have in Europe. Those permits today cost you less than five euros a ton. And even when the market was at its very highest a few years ago, it was still only around 20 euros a ton. So a thousand euros a ton to reduce carbon is in a very extreme cost. It is true that, that advanced biofuels also have a higher cost of carbon. They may be something more like 200 euros a ton, but that means they're much less expensive than electrification today, which kind of brings us back to the point that we make, the key point about the future of transport. We should support all the important technologies equally. And if we're prepared to put such enormous, um, enormous support into electrification, actually it would make a lot more sense to put some of that into supporting the first stages of, uh, of advanced biofuels rollout. We know that we'll need liquid fuels for the long term. There's nobody really talking about viable solutions at scale for many of the sectors, heavy duty, agriculture, construction, marine, aviation we'll need the advanced liquid technologies. So we think we should just support them all equally. And that's where we'd like to get to with policy. So last question. As you know, we've, we've been talking about this issue of electrification and that there are strong proponents that are really pushing that as a solution. And some are pushing it as the, in my view, as the sole or the only only solution out there to mitigate GHGs and, and air pollution. So my question to you is, is it? I mean, it seems to me that you know, there's more that can be done. I mean, you were talking about it a little bit earlier with respect to, you know, engines and in improving efficiency. Isn't there more to be done uh, with the internal combustion engine on the engine side? But but importantly, isn't there more to be done on, on the fuel side so that you have a the, – the fuels become – the liquid fuels become ever cleaner. There also are some biofuels. Hopefully, we will begin to see some advanced biofuels coming into to play, and we'll see electrification. What is your view uh, on this? Well, first of all, let's just talk about the efficiency of the vehicles. There are many experts, those at MIT, many academics, many car makers that do talk about further potential for efficiency. And that is, of course, it's efficiency of the vehicle overall, and that comes from a combination of improving the efficiency of the base engine, the powertrain, aerodynamics, and weight. And they will all play a role. And it's probably fair to say as well that the car makers may need to push somewhat a trend towards some downsizing in the fleet as well as part of that overall mix. They'll all be important technologies. And it's clear uh, from you know very credible work from many of the academics that some very significant savings can still be made in, in passenger transport and further in, in the heavier duty sectors as well. We need to recognize the potential and support the technologies to, to get there. Then let's talk about the, the liquid fuel. We certainly see this potential to evolve the liquid fuel as well. We've talked about sustainable crop-based biofuels. Europe needs to have that debate and decide and then close it down and let people get on with the, whatever the answer is. Advanced biofuels firmly believe they should be part of the future and development of them should be supported. 
uh, advanced biofuels, in fact, any type of sustainable lower carbon liquid is complementary to the use of petroleum and helps reduce the GHG intensity of the liquid. There are other technologies as well that can operate in the life cycle of production of the liquid fuel, even if it's a petroleum-based fuel. You know, the manufacturing at the site is the order of 10% of the carbon intensity. We've got technologies uh, for further efficiency. We've got technologies to use renewable energy at the site or to even have carbon capture and storage at the manufacturing site. These technologies under the current regulatory system that we've got, the current policy framework, don't yet add up. And so there's two things we think we need to do. One is to further develop those technologies to make the costs competitive. But secondly, to think about the right policy framework to make the right things happen. And actually, we think we could make some really quite significant and interesting reductions in the GHG intensity of the liquid fuel over some decades if we've got the right policy framework to do that. And if you combine a gradually reducing GHG intensity of the fuel with a gradually improving efficiency of the vehicle. That combination can continue to be very, very competitive, especially when you, it, when you stand back and look at the real life cycle of the vehicle, whether you're talking about a, an electric vehicle with its battery manufacture and the real GHG intensity of the liquid, together with, sorry, the, of, of the, the real GHG intensity of the electricity against the overall life cycle of the liquid energy and the internal combustion engine-based car. When we look at the figures, they're going to be competitive for a long time, and the internal combustion engine liquid fuel-based solution is likely to be the lower cost for a very long time too. So we just think we need to go after all of those technologies. We don't want to be seen as negative to any one of the technologies, just even-handed to all of them. And I'll just say some, something else that is standing in the way of doing more on liquid fuels right now. And that is this idea that some politicians and some voices in the debate continue to say that we won't need refineries in the future, uh, that there'll be no need for liquid fuels. And they even go as far as describing advanced biofuels as an interim solution before we get to full electrification. Well, I think that's, firstly, it's just plain wrong. We will need the liquids in the future. And secondly, I think it's very unhelpful as well because, as I was saying earlier, there will be at least tens of billions that need to be spent to deploy advanced biofuels technologies. Why would you do that if some politician or a political consensus is saying this is a temporary solution? Nobody's going to step forward and do that. People need to understand and we need to have a shared vision that liquid fuels are part of the long-term future and can be part of a solution that delivers our climate goals as well. The numbers show that. We firmly believe that the numbers show that. And by the way, what uh, sector is one of the largest that's really funding these initiatives? It's the refining industry. So who's going to, you know, who's going to fund these things? I mean, it's, it's really, aside from government, I mean, I ran the numbers at, at one point, but uh, government, you know, especially in, in the U.S., is one of the major funders of, of R&D. But so is the oil industry and not just in Europe, but globally. So I think that's sort of important to uh, to keep in mind for those who would wish to to just uh, get rid of the industry. It, it's understandable, but it's very difficult. Uh, we have uh, an energy system that uh, people 
depend on. It's a hundred plus years old. It's not easy to just, it's not a flip the switch uh, kind of situation. The the oil industry works, it does work on a long time frame. It wants to see policy stability. It wants to see rational policy for the long term. And I think there are many indications that where that exists, the oil industry steps up and invests and delivers. The most worrying thing about the oil industry is the change that can occur when you've got a poorly thought through policy, the inability of the regulators to create the long-term certainty and a level playing field for all the different businesses. I mean, at the moment, we just see there's a politically driven choice to support rapid electrification, which is dependent on um, very, very strong su- subsidies and cross, uh, yeah, cross subsidies and incentives which at some point will have to come to an end. And it's tough for anyone to step forward and say, that's something I'll invest into. Because you know that something dramatic has to change at some point. The sooner we can get back to a system which is more technology neutral in its approach, where it, it supports all the technologies that can make a contribution, is also more transparent in the real costs of these so that we can make conscious decisions that you know, this is what the cost of carbon is by doing this solution, and we make a conscious decision that this is something that is you know reasonable for the long term. Then you can see serious money being invested in the solutions. And you're absolutely right. The you know the major energy companies, the major oil companies, already have a track record of putting their money into cost-effective renewables and things that they believe can and will be a solution for the long term. And so it's really. The opportunity is there for the policymakers to create the right framework and the right shared vision, and it will enable a lot of the you know good things to happen. But we're not there. That's why I described the European uh, document of uh, several thousand pages as a starting point, uh, and it allows us then to have you know a basis for the discussion as opposed to just talking in loose principles before. But there's a huge amount to be done over the next two years. All right. Uh, We'll end it there. Uh, That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank John Cooper so much for being on the show today. And I hope you come back um, and we can talk more, especially as these discussions uh, move forward. Tammy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. So please do us a favor before we go today, will you uh, head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and, more importantly, benefit from it. Thank you so much for helping out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on Future Fuels issues, sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelsstrategies.com. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.